0: Yale
1: Podcast
0: Network. Welcome to Chewing the Fat, the Yale Sustainable Food Program's podcast that looks at people making change in the complex world of food and agriculture. I'm your host, Erwin Lee. We wrapped up our fall Chewing the Fat lineup with restorative ocean farmer, Bren Smith. Bren's a longtime collaborator and friend with our program, so we're so lucky to have him back on the show to talk about his new book, Eat Like a Fish. My Adventures as a Fisherman Turned Restorative Ocean Farmer. Eat Like a Fish came out in May this year, and it goes far beyond the science of seaweed to tell a moving story of personal and ecological redemption. It's absolutely worth the read. Or listen. Bren narrates the book himself. Here's his chat with podcast manager Lin Nguyen as a preview to inspire.
2: Welcome to the show, Bren.
0: Happy to be here. It's an honor.
2: So you're an ocean farmer. Tell us what that entails.
1: And so... I'm a restorative ocean farmer, and what that means is I grow a mix of shellfish and seaweeds right here in, um, in Long Island Sound. I'm based in the Thimble Islands. And, you know, I used to be a commercial fisherman, but then turned myself into an oysterman, and then um, now I grow a mix of oysters, clams, uh, scallops, mussels, and seaweed.
2: What does the ocean farm actually look like?
1: So, I mean, yeah, it's funny, you you look from the surface and there's kind of nothing to see, right? And that's a good thing, like our farms have a low aesthetic impact, you just see some buoys and, and markers, uh, everything's below the surface. But under there, just imagine an underwater garden where you have anchors at the edges of the farm, then lines, ropes that go up to the surface to buoys, and then horizontally down below the surface you have more... Uh, ropes and kind of just a underwater uh, rope scaffolding system it looks like and from there we grow our seaweeds vertically downwards next to that we've got mussels and mussel socks which are kind of like look like sausages Um, and then lantern nets with scallops then oysters and clams down uh, in the bottom and the idea is really how many different species can we grow in a 20 acre area how do we really mimic mother nature's Uh, Reef systems uh, grow for polyculture, not monoculture, and really become stewards of the sea.
2: Mm. So, I know you were disillusioned with commercial fishing, which led you to develop this restorative ocean farming model, one that's not so exploitative or destructive as commercial fishing. But, what kind of limits might arise out of the ocean farm model?
1: I mean, I'll say that I miss commercial fishing so much. Like, it was the best job I ever had. You know, being in the belly of a boat for three months a time with 13 other people, you know, being some of the last commercial hunters on earth, um, this sense of that sense of solidarity of endless work and the, the meaning that comes with helping feed my country. Like, yeah, I was 14 when I dropped out of high school and headed out to sea, and I really miss those days a lot. And if I think about growing seaweeds and shellfish, it's like, I don't know, it's kind of boring. <laughs> meaning like they just grow – and I'm more of like an arugula farmer than a fisherman. <laughs> like I can't go to the same bars I used to. Like what am I going to go do? Do Like go in and be like, yeah, I the big, grew the biggest piece of kelp. It was like 15 feet long. Like I'd get beat up, right? So I do miss part of that cultural tradition, but our oceans have changed and we need to transition with them. We need to transition our agricultural system, our food system. So sort of my personal journey of finding a way to make a living in the water has ended up with restorative ocean farming. So the limits are we really do not want to create kind of a centralized vertical monoculture system out in the ocean. Right? I worked on the salmon farms when I was younger in northern Canada, and those really replicated all the mistakes of land-based industrial ag. They were really essentially pig farms at sea, polluting local waterways or fish escapes. The stuff we were growing didn't taste like fish or food, use of pesticides, so, we don't want to replicate that. What we don't want is a thousand acre kelp farms, right? Sort of banana plantations out there. What we want is highly diversified 25 to 50 acre farms dispersed over areas. What I think of as a reef, right? So, 25 to 50 farms, a seafood hub and a hatchery in a low income neighborhood, rings of institutional buyers like hospitals, like universities, like Yale, and then rings of entrepreneurs. And then you replicate that reef up and down the coast. We do not want to privatize our seas, right? The oceans are these beautiful, pristine places that are owned for the common good, and we want to make sure we keep them that way. That said, we have no choice but to farm the ocean as long as we do it right. Like our food systems being pushed out to sea. I right? look at the wildfires, the droughts, food prices are going to go up. There's massive deficit of good nutrients in the soil. So it's going to go out to the sea. Our wild fishery cannot handle that burden, of increased demand so we're going to have to farm the great thing is we have time to think about what are these farms going to look like what is this agricultural system going to look like out in the ocean and maybe do food right like build ag and food the right way and i think that's why a lot of us are exciting is that there's opportunities to take lessons out in the ocean and apply them
2: so back to your point about camaraderie within the fishing industry have you found anything similar to it in ocean farming
1: I think what's really different is the level of diversity. I say cultural diversity, I don't like ethnic diversity not yet, but in the fishing industry when I was there, we were heavily sort of working class white folks from very similar backgrounds and there was real solidarity around that. Now it's fascinating because the dis- people come from so many walks Of life. We have young land based farmers that are coming out to farm. We've got an incredible amount of women. We have former fishermen, lobstermen, and shrimpers. We have a lot of native uh, community members from indigenous communities. And we've got veterans. So that mix, I think, has created a, a whole different kind of community and relationship and has been very new to me, but really exciting. I mean, one of the things that was most shocking I created Green Wave, the nonprofit in order to train the next generation of ocean farmers. And it was supposed to be sort of disgruntled former fishermen like me in transition. Instead, we looked at the industry uh, last year, up and down from the hatcheries to the farms to the new entrepreneurs starting up, and it was majority women. That was so shocking to me. (laughs) But it's so exciting to think that the blue economy could be an industry built and like the women could be the architects of this industry, not sort of washed up old guys like, like me. And an example of one of the farmers is Catherine Puckett out in on Block Island. She grows oysters, clams, and kelp. She has a pink boat. Uh, she calls herself the oyster wench, has an all-male crew, and, like, they love the job because they get to work year-round. They don't have to leave islands, stuff like that. But they freaking hate working on a pink boat, right? <laughs> but, like, maybe that's what ocean farming is going to look like in the future. So I say all to that, so sort of the rules and the culture are not written yet. It's coming, and uh, and we'll see what it looks like.
2: Why do you think there is this majority of women?
1: I think in the food sector in general, at least when I go to meetings and conferences and young farmer coalitions and stuff, huge number of women in the room. So um, I think there's that push. I think there is a an ethic of stewardship, but also a drive for opportunity and innovation. I'm uh, I'm just seeing you know green wave is majority. My organization is majority women. I like I'm not one to judge, but maybe there's just this sense of, of opportunity to build something unique and on their own terms rather than sort of scrape for equity in an existing system. Like this isn't about just trying to get a, a seat on a board, an all-male board. This is actually about, no, we're going to create the table, we're going to create the board, and we're going to create the industry. So maybe that's why.
2: On that note about creating... In the industry, your book really pushes for accessibility, that anyone can start their underwater farm using the how-tos you provide as a starting point. I'm interested in the scale and the speed of how these ocean farms can be established. So I guess my question is, how can you adapt the ocean farm model to be effective anywhere, taking into account the impacts on local communities and local economies?
1: Absolutely. One of the things we do is at GreenWave, when we move into a new area, we have, by the way, we've been asked into a hundred different countries. Um, This is without, we only go places we're asked to go. We've been asked into a hundred countries and have a waiting list of over 4,000 farmers. Like there's an incredible amount of demand there. But before we work with any community, we do something called a landscape analysis, where we look at the local ecology, the customs, the latent infrastructure, the skill base, um, the barriers to economic development, food logistics, stuff like that, and we sort of create a strategy around that that's very, that's modeled on on that community. One of the mistakes I made was, you know, I know my patch of water, I know my my twenty five acres, and I um, I know the currents, the tides, I know the like the economics, the market, everything. Well, that wasn't replicable everywhere, right? This it can't be cookie cutter. It needs to be fashioned accordingly. That said, there are pieces that are highly replicable. And that's going to be key, like fast replication sort of being the nail salon model of the sea requiring low capital uh, costs, minimal skill requirements is going to be a key ingredient to really moving at the speed of the climate crisis. So the elements that are very replicable are all we're doing is creating underwater rope scaffolding, just giving a structure that's very cheap to build doesn't require a lot of equipment. You can put in a farm in about two days, take it out in two days. Like it's very, very modular. So you can just farm one season or you can farm year round. And it's just cheap. It's like, depends on the anchoring systems. but It's like twenty to $50,000 to get a farm going. You need a boat and a lease. The other thing is that there are different mixes of species that we can grow everywhere. So like kelp, there's 250 different varieties of kelp. And we're growing sugar kelp right now throughout New England and New York, Alaska, San Diego, Humboldt. Like there are some species, sort of like I don't know, do sequoias grow all over the place? But I'm sure there's some. I know nothing about the land, but I'm sure there's some trees <laughs> that are like grow in many places. Well, kelp is the same, uh, uh, same way. So we can get very good at growing certain crops. At the same time, I mean, just because we can grow it doesn't mean we can sell it at some point here, we can talk about some of the market barriers and opportunities. So we need to pick our species so that they can be engines of like economic development. It's just not like, like cute food, like a ramp, wild harvest, you know, foraged in New York in Central Park. Like that's great, but that's not an engine of economic development. That's like an educational tool to get people to change flavors. And it's sort of like tur- ecotourism, right? We need like really robust crops that are going to shift the needle on the economy.
2: Why sugar kelp? Mm.
1: So sugar, it's its native to Long Island Sound and to New England in general. It's extremely fast growing. So from a farmer perspective, like it's important as we get into cutting edge regenerative farming, whether land and sea, that we don't, we're not gardeners. Like we need to be farmers. This isn't about like little cute patches of land with all this diversity that You know, we can eat and have a little stand at a farmer's market. Like we got to grow millions of pounds of things, right? Between all of us. And so sugar kelp is something that we can grow really efficiently, high volume of growth per foot. We can get three harvests each season. And I think most importantly, it has all these multiple value streams. Like it is an interesting seaweed to eat. I just had no interest in it. I'm not a seaweed eater, but it's got a really mild flavor which is really good as sort of a gateway drug for Americans into sea vegetables. <laughs> it turns bright green when you cook it, so that aesthetic is sort of exciting. And we use it as an ingredient in, like, we work with a company, Akua, which which does uh, mushroom and kelp jerky. We use it in uh, plant-based burgers. We turn it into noodles. And, like, that flavor profile of sugar kelp is really good. One of the best-selling dishes we do is... um barbecue kelp noodles with parsnips and breadcrumbs. So the kelp is extremely mild. It's got an al dente uh, mouthfeel to it. The barbecue sauce brings some heat to the dish, the parsnips and roundness, and then you get the crunch of the breadcrumbs. And that just completely almost like de make makes um, the seaweed something that's uh, simple and surprising. So that's the food piece. But the other reason for sugar kelp, is that we can use it for so many things. So we say like kelp can be the new kale, but it can also be the soy of the sea, but not evil, right? So the reason I say that, and I learned this at Yale, actually, I was sitting in on a little seminar and um, there was a soy historian there that told me that the, in the 1950s, the soy industry sat down and were like, we're never going to get Americans to eat soy. So we'll put it in everything, and that's the world we live in now. Now that's hugely problematic. Soy deforestation, is addicted to pesticides, monoculture—all those things. But that underlying quality of like hiding regenerative crops into existing markets is really important. So you know, working with a with a bioplastics company right now, which makes straws and packaging out of five different kinds of seaweed, They're an amazing company. Mm-hmm. We can use um, kelp as fertilizer. We can use seaweeds as feed. Uh, it's used in pharmaceuticals, like there are all these uses. So that gives me hope and it's why we've selected this crop because it has both food potential but a whole bunch of other potential too.
2: Yeah, more on this food potential. Mm -hmm. Have you found that the general appetite for kelp has changed in recent years?
1: So quite honestly, when we first started working on it, I worked with a lot of seafood chefs and that was a failure because they made like seaweed salads and wrapped it around fish. They didn't approach it as a vegetable. So I think we really hit barriers there. But when we started working with the chefs that really specialized in making vegetables delicious and moving them in the center of their plate, that's where then we overcame the barrier of people eating it. So it was really about getting it into the right hands of like chefs that are really going to be talented at creating what I think of as this new climate cuisine. And right now the barrier to kelp farming is not the market like there's more people who want kelp in the market right now than there is kelp the barrier is processing there's not enough processing infrastructure in order to take the kelp and process it and get it to the market so we we can grow way way more kelp right now and cuz people are eating you know there's finally momentum it was a slow start uh, for sure
2: mm. what kind of changes in the processing infrastructure are you talking about mm.
1: So, you know, our farming system and style works really well out in the ocean because it's cheap. We don't fight gravity, you know, kelp and shellfish, there's zero inputs, no fresh water, no fertilizer, no feed. Like this makes it very affordable grow. Once we hit land, we face all the challenges of land-based agriculture, which is land and buildings. Infrastructure is expensive. Processing is a very low margin business. It's extremely complex. It's actually pretty high risk. To move food around, to keep it cooled, to comply with regulations, things like that. So, you know, all those things that land-based farmers try to do with the creation of food hubs and institutional partnerships and stuff like that. We're we're swimming in that same space. At the same time, there's all this stuff we don't know how to do. Like no one's doing fresh, raw, packaged kelp because we don't know the exact right mixes of gases that are used in there in order to stabilize it like you would with, uh, say, baby leaf spinach, right? We can do a baby leaf kelp, but if kelp is exposed to oxygen, it, the cells and it withers really quickly, right? It's a huge, it needs to get into the processing plant within the first hour, eight hours, um, and you need to get it uh, cooked, and, cooked and blanched.
2: You drew this connection between land and sea farming. I'd love to hear more of your thoughts about how these two types of farming interact or compare.
1: So it was a huge eye opener for me when I, I sat down to do the book and started to do some research that in the early 1900s in San Diego, there were 52 different kelp products being made by 1,500 workers on the docks, right? Like who knew that kelp was this core thing? And the question is, what were they making? First of all, they were making butane and weapons for World War One. Like only us could we weaponize kelp, right? I used to say like, how much evil could you do with kelp? Well, it turns out (laughs) we figured that out many, many, many decades ago. But uh, most of it was actually being turned into feed and fertilizer for land-based farms going to the Midwest. There were, I think, 700 farms in the Midwest that were being supplied by the San Diego kelp industry. Now, the reason that is, is So many of the nutrients the land based farming needs that phosphorus, the nitrogen, the carbon, and all those micronutrients that are so key to like growing delicious, subtle vegetables all that stuff's in the ocean, right? It gets leached out of the soil and ends up in the water. Like, I have it all, right? So, kelp is this incredible technology to soak up those nutrients and bring them back to the soil. So, we do a lot of work with land based farmers. About 30% of our crop locally here goes to land based farms for fertilizer, including the Yale farm here uses the kelp fertilizer, but really build a nutrient loop, like a circular nutrient loop, where the farms are using the kelp, that nitrogen and phosphorus, other stuff is leaching back into the sound, then we collect it and bring it back to grow the food. The other benefit of that is that we can collect our carbon with the kelp, and then we can bring it, put it in the soil, and then it becomes part of the regenerative ag soil sequestration process right so we can really help enhance and speed up that carbon sink i mean i'd say you know from an oystering perspective we have a saying that you look for the sweet waters and the sweet waters are where fresh water meets salt water and where they meet is the most productive ecosystem on the globe it's the salt marshes well we think that there's incredible opportunity on in those sweetwaters, like between the two systems at the water's edge that we can build these bridges and just really create all this, this innovation. Take something as simple as the Irish seaweed potato. So they used to take a – the Irish had a potato they just grew with kelp. It had this like really famous flavor, and it was a particular crop that people sold regularly. There was the Hebrides Island kelp-fed beef where um, the majority of the diet of the cows were were fed on kelp. And it was this this incredible marbling and had this umami overtone, slight saltiness. And it was just delicious. And this is something that's not sold anywhere in the globe at this point. Um, So anyway, I just think there's a lot of opportunity.
2: Are there any difficulties with sea farming that aren't necessarily present in land farming?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's a rough place to grow food, <laughs> like kind of a stupid place. Like, okay, my soil turns over a thousand times a day. Like I cannot control that nutrient flow. So on, when you're on land, you can augment the soil, it's stable, things like that. Me, I have no control over that. And I can't see the crops I can grow, right? It's all underwater. So the credible uh, volatility, and we deal with that in all sorts of ways. But th- I think that's one um, huge, huge difference. I also think it is amazing what we don't know about farming underwater. Like, there is thousands of years of experience in history uh, with land-based farming, and there's just—that could go on and on about how little we know about uh, how to be productive farmers underwater.
2: Returning back to what we were talking about earlier about community in the ocean farming and outreach. So the average age of the American farmer is 58 years old, and even the average— beginning farmer is 47 years old. I'm wondering if ocean farming is attracting a younger audience of farmers.
1: That's fa I had no idea that second stat of like the, the beginning farmers are same age as me. And I've been at this forever. Yeah. It's fascinating. Um, so the answer is yes. Like I said, we've got a waiting list of 4,000 farmers. We haven't done a breakdown of age because we've never asked people. But you look around the farmers, in, whether it's sunken seaweed out in San Diego, whether it's Barnacle Seafoods in southern Alaska, like the Martinez brothers out in Martha's Vineyard, like these are folks that are much, much younger and coming in droves because they look at the economy. They want to get into farming and land is so expensive, but in the ocean, out where I am, it's either $50 an acre or $25 an acre per year. Well, that's something we can all afford. The fact that the farm, you know, you don't need to build barns or greenhouses or anything like that. You can just, you know, build this underwater scaffolding system. And the fact that overhead's low, that we don't have to water, we don't have to fertilize, no feed, stuff like that just really brings the cost. So I think young people are actually really attracted to the simplicity of the business uh, model. I also think young people are willing to take higher risk. I mean, this is, especially in the climate era, right? Where there's sort of a, a not enough, funny enough ambition and risk-taking in the climate space by many of us, I think. And young people who want to put their bodies at work addressing climate change are really drawn uh, to this sector because the ocean can be really one of the solutions to climate change. And as workers, you know, we get to be out there and um, just help nurture the ocean to continue to mitigate and avoid the climate crisis.
2: So in this climate era... Have you found that policy and legislation has developed in recent years to support the growth of the ocean farming industry as the solution?
1: So, you know, stunning. The Green New Deal mentions the ocean one time, right? I mean, like, here's the great, progressive, insanely ambitious piece of uh, climate legislation, and it completely forgets huge swaths of U.S. territory. I mean, more of the U.S. is underwater than above, And um, we've totally forgotten it. So up until recently, I think it's been left off. There have been really great work done at NOAA, Sea Grant, USDA, and other folks trying to transition a lot of, say, beginning farmer grants and farmer transition grants and things over to the ocean farming space, work in order to get crop insurance for ocean farmers, development of nitrogen trading programs for farmers that are collecting, you know, ocean farmers that are collecting nitrogen and getting paid for that. So there's been real work there. I think there's a major shift going on that we're just seeing in the last probably eight months or so where the ocean is slowly, be- I mean, it's becoming seen no longer as a victim, but as a core protagonist and uh, central character in solving the climate crisis. So we think of the ocean, we think of you know overfishing, uh, slavery on shrimp boats, uh, rising temperatures, things like that. But instead, if we turn around, the ocean has uh, you know, sequestered 30% of man-made emissions. It's um, trapped 90% of the heat that the planets produce. Like, it is the great regulator and um, hero of, the, of protecting the climate, and now we need to leverage that and really you know, sort of collaborate with the ocean in the solution space.
2: What about the investment landscape? How is that tracing the growth of the ocean farming industry?
1: So the history of aquaculture, to me, is sort of, you know, people see the ocean, it's a wide open space, they see huge opportunity. So an idea comes out of the research labs, gets designed by engineers, investors get very excited, huge amounts of money rush in, it goes out in the ocean, the ocean is very uh, an unfriendly place to grow, and then the projects collapse, and capital rushes out. And then consensus is, oh, the oceans for aquaculture is too risky a place. And you'll find like 10 years of sort of, you know, capital being too afraid to move in. I think it's really important that doesn't happen again. Uh, we need very, very patient capital investors that are sort of not in climate denial, that understand that investment is going to require a long, deep commitment and sort of sharing in the risky business of growing food in the era of climate change. Like that's going to be key. And I've learned this by experience. I mean, I tried to build a processing plant. It was a complete failure because just partnered with the wrong folks. And, and, you know, I've got a chapter in the book called swimming with sharks, which is my time sort of swimming with a lot of the folks in wall street. Now, you know, so many have good intentions. They're just like all of us in our own way in climate denial. Like, they just haven't realized you can't use the business models and the principles of the 20th century in the era of climate change. Right? There's no way you're going to make 15 to 30 percent return in five years and have an impact. Right? There is just going to be a trade off. You need to. It needs to be slow, deliberate, and we all need to. You know, we have to make sure those benefits um, are shared by communities and don't don't concentrate at the top. So I think. And we're doing this agreement, having a conversation with the impact investor space in order to try to develop sort of new investment models that are appropriate to building a food system uh, out in the ocean.
2: Okay. So for the last bit of our conversation, I'd like to turn to some more personal questions. Hmm. So your book's structured in a way that weaves together your life story and the science of ocean farming, as well as how-tos and kelp recipes. So can you separate your sphere of ocean farming from your personal life or has the career been all consuming instead?
1: Mm. I mean, so like I've been pushed off the ocean many times, you know, so dropped out of high school, became a commercial fisherman, cod stocks collapse, get pushed off the ocean, right? Uh, Go onto the salmon farms, try that, become disillusioned, got pushed off the ocean, right? Then tried my hand at oystering, and then got, after seven years, got hit by two hurricanes, got pushed off the ocean. Like, there's just been this pattern. I will say, every time at a personal level, I, I've lost my vocation at sea, I've become a terrible person. Like, i become <laughs> more negative, angrier, i become petty, mm-hmm. like, on land. Like, it's just really <laughs> important for my family and my, my my own personal health that I, you know, remain on the water and I die in my boat one day. That said... I think I've always struggled. I, you know, come from, a, my parents were um, draft dodgers, you know, Vietnam resistors out of here in New England and, and out of Brooklyn. And I was born up in, you know, Newfoundland, but they come from, you know, my dad was a linguist and started a linguistics department up in at Memorial University, but I was a high school dropout and became a fisherman. And I've always had this conflict of like, you know, Am I smart enough and do I have an education and am I qualified for things? And that insecurity drove me to do things that were a total failure. Like I went to law school because I'd been pushed off the sea. I figured I was never going to find a job in the ocean again. I was floundering around trying to do something to law school. And that was just the stupidest thing I ever did in my life. I had no business doing that. And I uh, yeah, I finished and and, uh, and immediately bought an old Airstream trailer and lived in the <laughs> woods for a decade in response, but there's always been this sort of tension between land and sea that said the reason, I mean, there's some like all fishermen I'd say are a mix of engineers, scientists, like, you know, saltwater cowboys, ecologists, like you really need to know what you're doing in in a multidisciplinary way when you're out in the ocean and ocean farming is the same way. I mean, you know, we won the Buckminster Fuller prize for ecological design. And the reason we won is they, they looked at us and they're like, Oh, you're doing architecture underwater. I'd never thought they were doing architecture, but it turns out when we figured out, Oh, when you're going to design underwater, you need to be a willow, not an oak. Like you need to build things that the sea is just going to roll over. Hurricanes are just going to roll over. And then your, your farm pops back up as opposed to, you know, pens, nets, walls trying to resist. Again, that was, you know, seen as a design and architecture principle. So ocean farming has been this place where I've been able to reconcile the need for ideas and continued learning with the real pride of both feeding people and a manual sort of, you know, good old regular work.
2: I'm really interested in just how complex your relationship with the sea is. If you hadn't spent your early life growing up um, on the water in Newfoundland, do you think you would have found your your way to the sea on your own?
1: Mm, it's a good it's a good question. I really I mean the sea saved me. So I think either I would have become, you know, a terrible man, terrible <laughs> husband, depressed, a, a much heavier drinker. You know, I would have could like probably continued on my track of ending in and out of jail and drug centers. So uh, I mean, drug rehab centers. So, no, I think it, like it if I hadn't found the ocean, probably my, my physiology would have killed me. It's <laughs> <That's> my <laughs> best guess. Mm.
2: So on the opposite end of that, can you tell us about a time when you had a mishap on the ocean?
1: Mm, yeah. So, well, right after Hurricane, I think it was Irene or Sandy, I forget which one. I went out too fast. The storm was still going, and I just wanted to save the farm. And, um, cause I knew it had just been, you know, destroyed. I was just oystering at this point, uh, and didn't have a farm that was really climate. It was, was hurricane resistant. And, um, I went out, it was still really blowing and, um, trying to save my, my oysters and my, um, the hauler broke, so line broke and the engine died. And I got, you know, went up on the rocks and, um, a Coast Guard came and got me. So that was definitely a a mishap. I'm very careful on the water. I remain scared of it. An old timer tell me one time that like the moment you stop being scared of the sea, it's time to quit. And I have built, you know, I've been on the high seas for so much. and Now I'm just on Long Island Sound. And <laughs> Like physiologically, I'm still looking for the rogue wave, you know, like nervously looking over my back, over my shoulder. But I think there's a, a real respect and, you know, I can't swim. So like, I can't have too many mishaps. Like if I fall in the water, it's over. Like, I've never learned to swim, but I've been on the sea forever.
2: Hmm. So what's the most fulfilling part of your work on the sea? Hmm. I think I
1: still get to be, have the soul of a fisherman. And what I mean by that is, like, yeah, I can't hunt and chase fish anymore. But I still get to have a self-directed life, no boss. I succeed and fail on my own terms. And I still get to keep that pride of feeding my community and country. I I think that's my, I mean, I'm not an environmentalist. Like, I'm not out there to save bears and birds and bees and, like, you know, stop seagull hunts and all that sort of stuff. I'm out there because I really believe the ocean is where I should be. It's my home and my place I should make a living, right? You know, and um, so it's I get to keep that core identity of what it is. I mean, fishermen, and I'd say ocean farmers now, they're like the coal workers and the um, land-based farmers and steel workers. The, there are certain professions in America and around the globe where, you know, they have a sense of meaning because y- your job is to power, build, feed the country, right? There are jobs that we we say we can write and sing songs about. I mean, there are no songs out there about lawyers and hedge fund managers. There are hundreds of songs about farmers, fishermen, coal workers, and stuff like that. So. It's that the ocean allows me, permits me to have a job with meaning, I think is my favorite thing.
2: Thanks, Bren.
0: Thanks for having me. This is great. From the Yale Sustainable Food Program, this has been Chewing the Fat. To follow more of Bren's work, follow at GreenWaveOrg on Twitter and Instagram. Eat Like a Fish can be found in bookstores today. This episode was produced by myself, Thomas Hagen, Amy Zhang, Lin Nguyen, and Alexis Stanger. Mixing by Ryan McAvoy of the Yale Broadcast Studio. Music by Eddie Joe Antonio and Louis De Felice. Artwork by Logan Howard. Program support by Jacqueline Mono, Jeremy Oldfield, Noah Macy, and Mark Bomford. Special thanks to the following organizations for supporting Bren's visit. The Yale Peabody Museum of Natural History. The Yale Center for Business and the Environment. The Sustainable Food and Agriculture Student Interest Group at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. We'll see you in two weeks.